I just thank you for your word. Please prepare our hearts to learn from your word and give me words that are clear and not tainted with opinion. I just thank you for these ladies and please bless our time today. Amen. Um, I've often wondered, truly, if I could somehow be a direct descendant of Peter, the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. And I think I might still have uh, bruises on my shins from the many, many times in my life that my sisters have kicked me under the table to get me to stop saying whatever embarrassing thing I was saying at the time. I haven't really been known for my speech. Um, <laughs> when I was 10, I can remember very clearly in sincere desperation, my dad just kind of didn't know what to do with me and he wanted to teach me some discernment. And so he just said, I don't know what to say. Read a proverb a day every day for the rest of your life. And I'm still reading a proverb a day. So his advice was good, and I'm waiting for it to take. So anyway, the irony uh, that I'm teaching on the tongue today is very clear, but I actually found it really comforting. Um, it's, I love when God puts us in those places where it is abundantly clear that the only way it's going to be impactful or work or good or anything is if God works. And he's using a weak and broken vessel to teach on something that can be a weakness of mine. And so that kind of took the pressure off. This is not going to succeed unless the Lord allows it. And then I just thought, isn't that everything in life? <laughs> Sometimes it's just made clear. And so I was thankful for that. Nothing is more telling on the heart than the tongue. And I want that to be the thing that we kind of think about as we go through the lesson today. During our study in James, we have seen ways in which true faith is shown. So it's shown in chapter 1 by having joy and endurance in trials and by being doers of the word. In chapter 2, we see proof of faith and that we don't show partiality. Sarah did a great sermon last week, or teaching. Uh, we uh, were also shown that faith without works is dead, and now we're in chapter 3. And as Katie said, that chapter 3, in that introduction, chapter 3 is the main point of the book. And he starts this main point by talking about our tongue and how really our true faith is shown in our speech, our true faith. The tongue is mentioned in every chapter in James, twice in chapter 1, first in verse 19 when he cautions that we be slow to speak, then again in verse 26 when he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. We see it in chapter 2, verse 12, when he tells us to speak as those who will be judged. In chapter 4, verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. In chapter 5, verse 12, when James tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. What if we had such intentionality about our speech that I didn't have to say, I really promise? You just knew if I said yes, it was happening. Or if I said no, it wasn't happening. It would be kind of awesome. Um, James, of course, also speaks about the tongue here in chapter 3. Why is there such an emphasis on the tongue? Because it reveals the heart, as we know. So why don't we just talk about the heart? You know, that's kind of what we're talking about. But as I studied this, I found that those who have studied Hebrew, which I don't know at all, um, say that in the Hebrew, there's almost no distinction between the word heart and tongue. Um, when studying the connection of the heart and tongue, Dr. MacArthur says, in the Hebrew, the heart and the guilty member are not easily distinguished. And this is true throughout, Bible, or throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 59, 7, it says, their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. Feet are to blame, if you will, not the heart. Again, in 2 Peter 2.14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. 
again, it's the sinning member that takes the blame. Similarly, we see this in Jesus himself. He is the word made flesh. He's the incarnate word. There's no distinction between his word and who he is. And if we're made new in Christ, our words should reflect our lives similarly. Our tongue is the voice of our heart, and nowhere is the union of works and faith more visible than in our speech. When Isaiah wanted to confess his sin in the midst of a vision of God's holiness, what did he say? Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What would our speech sound like if we were constantly beholding the Lord? I really thought about that throughout this whole study, and I keep on coming back to thinking, am I thinking earthly or heavenly? And that kind of controls our speech. And, as was pointed out in our discussion today, might control our typing as well. Sometimes we think we're hidden behind a screen. <laughs> hmm. As we approach our text, I want to share the five uses of the tongue. First, we see the tongue's potential to condemn. Second, the tongue's power to control. Third, the tongue's potency for destruction. Fourth, the tongue proves our conversion. And lastly, the tongue's perfidy to compromise. I know perfidy is kind of a funny word. It means treachery, deliberate breach of trust, faithlessness, hypocrisy, and duplicity. So number one, the potential to condemn. Teaching on the power of the tongue would not be new to James' audience. They would have had Jesus' own teaching on the tongue, where he says it's better to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to lead one of his little ones astray. And they would have had the book of Proverbs. They would have had other books as well. But in Proverbs, we see um, it's a book that tells us to receive words of wisdom and insight in Proverbs 1. In Proverbs 13, we are warned that those who guard their lips protect their life, but those who speak rashly come to ruin. In Proverbs 12, we see that the words of the rash cut like a sword, but the words of the wise bring healing. They would know that Jesus himself was the word made flesh, as we've said already. His word created the world. God himself is truth. His word is truth. And who is the antithesis of God? Satan, also known as the father of lies. The very fall of creation was ignited through lying words. Yes, it was an act of disobedience that caused the fall, but it was that that word that put that seed of doubt into Adam and Eve's heart. And what was the first sin after the fall? Slander. God came and said, what did you do? And those famous words, Adam, it was that woman you gave me. He slandered God by blaming him. The readers of James would have also been raised in the Jewish church with the Pharisees and Sadducees as their teachers. Jesus was called rabbi. He was a teacher. And he was the perfect example. He forgave. <laughs> he loved the weak and the lowly. He ate with the tax collectors. He washed his disciples' feet, and he was the ultimate suffering servant who would suffer and die for our sins on the cross. There's no inconsistency between his works and his words. However, we see the Pharisees in contrast to that, who in Matthew 23, 14 were rebuked for being hypocrites who devour widows' houses and make up for it by making long prayers. They would walk in public and make these long prayers to make up for their, their acts, right? But we're told that it's by their conduct and their speech that they will be judged. I believe it's with that understanding that James tells his readers that not many should become teachers. And honestly, <laughs> I called my sister many times with that warning and said, I don't think I should teach. I'm not really sure that I'm called. I don't know that this is my thing. I don't think I should teach. When I didn't get through to her, I superseded her and talked to Heather. I said, Heather, I don't really think that this is my thing. And I'm here today, so 
You guys know how those conversations went. <laughs> we see in verse 1 of chapter 3 that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Why are we judged with greater strictness? Because teachers, are in, they have the influence over the spiritual lives of those that they teach, and they will stand before God to give an account for those who are under their teaching. Isn't that weighty? The teachers, elders, and husbands. Those are the three groups of people that will stand before God and give an account for more than themselves. And so just whenever you're praying, the teachers, elders, and husbands that you know, just we need to be praying for them. That's a weighty thing. And the weight that I, <laughs> I'm going to be accountable for what I taught here today really brought me to my knees, if I'm going to be honest with you guys. James goes on and says that we all stumble in many ways. Is a perfect person who can bridle their tongue. He does not mean here that teachers actually have to be perfect. We saw that in our lesson, right? It means that they're spiritually mature. And this is a safeguard to those under teaching. Um, only those who understand the weight of their calling should teach, and only those who have a maturity of speech should teach. Um, and again, I want to just pause here and say, I am so thankful for Brian. Uh, it is a blessing probably greater than we'll ever know the side of heaven that we have a pastor who can control his tongue and a wife who can control her tongue. It, it is a great blessing. So keep the pains in your, in your prayers as well. And I also want to make a quick note that James does not say that all who feel called should teach. You have to be qual called and qualified. We kind of live in a world where we do what we feel or what we feel called. There, there's qualification that goes with this. I come to point two, the tongue's power to control. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. This is horse country, and I'm not really sure there could be a better illustration for this city. <laughs> we are all familiar with horses, and even if we don't ride, we know a little bit about them, and we know how they're controlled right? That bit is in place, controls the bridle, and you're good to go. I don't know if you've ever been on a horse where the bit comes out, but if you have been in that situation, I'm sure it wasn't going very well for you. <laughs> if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. Control the tongue, and everything falls into submission, just as a horse will do all that you command if the bit is in, on its tongue. Um, when I was a little girl, I grew up in Montana, and we went on a mountain trail ride, and we got to a place in the trail where it was just a sheer cliff on one side. And when my horse had been being uh, saddled, it was bloated. And at that moment, its stomach goes back in, my saddle is loose, and it flipped, flipped me right off. And I literally, <laughs> the Lord was kind, I hugged this tree that was growing out of the side of the cliff. And I just hugged it until someone came and rescued me. <laughs> and um, after I was rescued and fine, um, we all noted that my horse just stayed there. And I don't know if you guys have ever gone on trail rides before, but those horses are basically trained to just follow the horse in front of them. They just kind of keep on going and doing their thing. And so we were all pretty amazed that this horse just stood there and waited for me while its bit was in place. And it was taught that when the reins hang loose on its neck, we stay still. And it did. It obeyed even without rider. James' next illustration shows us that the tongue directs course. Just as a small rudder directs the ship, so the tongue directs your life. Knowing that the tongue and speech control life, I want us to think a little bit about what it is that we say to ourselves. Now, we've all heard it before. No one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. So how is your self-speech? Do you justify your sin or do you confess it? 
Do you grumble and complain? Or do you speak the gospel to yourself daily? What we say matters. What we think is what we become. And knowing that speech directly directs the course of our lives, I want us to look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. If our speech passes the test of this verse, we have no need to fear over what we say. Number three, the tongue's potency for destruction. I want to look at some amazing ways that speech has been used throughout the Bible. And when we understand um, the effect that speech can have, it helps us understand its potency for destruction. So first in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. The people were not fulfilling God's command to go and fill the earth. They'd grown proud. And they thought that they didn't need God. So God confused their speech. And the confusion of speech changed the very trajectory of mankind. It was through refusing to speak that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. This is one of my, I don't know why this one always chokes me up, but I just love this story. Um, all they had to do was deny God with their lips. Do you remember that, you know, he was saying, I don't really care if you really believe what you're saying, just deny God with your lips. They couldn't do it. And if, so they, they, if they had denied God with their lips, right, they would have been saved, and of course God saved them anyway. But their faithfulness was shown through them holding their tongues. And their trust in the Lord was shown through them saying, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto you that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. And they, before that they say, we don't have to answer you in this matter. So it was through them holding their tongue that they showed their faith. And it was through what they said that they they affirmed that God is God, regardless of what man does. It was through speech that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It was through, it was because of speech that Stephen was stoned. It was because of the written and the spoken word that Martin Luther was kicked out of the church. <sighs> speech, though as seemingly small as a rudder, has a great potential to direct the course of someone's life and even the course of history. Verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Here we come back to the garden. Through speech, Satan was able to tempt Adam and Eve to disobey. And I want to do a little compare and contrast with you. I know we kind of did this during the lesson a little bit, talked about all the different uh, problems with speech. Um, but I want to compare God's words with Satan's words. God is truth. Satan is the father of lies. God's word is living and active, as we see in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Satan's words lead to death and destruction. God saves with his word, both in the incarnation of his son and through the spreading of the gospel. Satan's words cause doubt in the gospel and derail people from truth, but God's word accomplishes his will. One of the most comforting passages in all of scripture, Isaiah 55, 11. And so shall my word be which goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Satan's words destroy, divide, undermine, confuse, and lie. Our words fall into two categories those that please the Lord and those that don't. It's that simple and it's that hard. It is, 
easier to sin with our tongue than any member of the body. We saw that again in our lesson. MacArthur said, we can't do everything, but we can say anything. Our words have an amazing ability to destroy. Look at verse 6 with me, and we'll see how seriously James takes the tongue's ability to destroy. He says, the tongue is a fire. Think about a fire. We know all the ways that fire can destroy, but what about fire when it's good? We can cook with fire. We keep warm with fire. Fire can bring life, sustain life. But think about cooking in the kitchen. <laughs> if I don't maintain that stove properly, my house is going to burn down. And if I'm, my family's going to go camping in a couple weeks, if we don't put our, our camping fire out properly, we could start a forest fire. Our words can sometimes be well-intentioned, just like fire. But if you don't maintain it with great diligence, even well-intentioned words can cause destruction. <clears throat> James goes on. Not only does he say the tongue is a fire, he says it is a world of unrighteousness. A world. <laughs> the word used for world is cosmos, which can be used for world like earth, but it can also mean system, like our solar system. Much like we have a solar system, our world works in systems as well, and our tongue is one. One commentator said, it is a microcosm of evil among our members. Our tongue doesn't stay put. It doesn't just defile itself. As the verse goes on, we see that it stains the whole body. It is set on fire for the course of life and is set on fire by hell. The natural state of our tongue is evil, and with it, destruction follows. When I was studying, I really couldn't help but think about Hitler and those pictures that we would see in school growing up. He didn't start with the Holocaust. He started with speeches. He started with a Germany that was hurting after World War I, and he tickled their ears. And then over time, he got a group of people. I don't have to tell you, right? What does he say? The it, it's a world of evil set on fire by hell. Is that not what happened? Laws allowing for the murder of the unborn weren't written quickly. Margaret Sanger's sister was actually the person who started Planned Parenthood or wanted to. And when she was first out there saying, you can kill unborn babies, she was put in jail. She, and then people were really threatening her life. She had to go kind of underground and be quiet, and that's when her sister took over. There was a time when such speech wasn't tolerated. And then over time, right, women said that we had the right to our own bodies and we started to believe this verbiage, it's my body. We're made in the image of God, we're his creatures. We don't have the right to ourselves. Our creator has the right to us. And what we say should reflect our creator. Have you ever been affected by speech? When I was in college, uh, someone spread a rumor about me that I had been drinking. I went to a private Christian school, and I signed a contract that said, when I'm in school, I will not drink. And I was there on a basketball scholarship. And um, if it had been true that I had been drinking, I would have had my scholarship taken away, and I probably would have been kicked out of school. Um, and this, this school was already kind of my second chance in college. And So at 4 a.m., the older, wiser lady that I had in my life came and picked me up, and so I could help her with this charity garage sale. And I got in her car at 4 a.m. and I thought, this thing isn't starting till 9. Why are you here so early? And she said, well, uh, if you had been drinking like they said you had been, you would have been hungover, smelling like alcohol, and definitely not able to get up at 4 o'clock with me right now. She helped prove my innocence, and I kept my spot on the team. But to be honest with you, that gossip, that lie, put a seed of doubt about me into the minds of some people. And over time, God was able to 
do a work in my life that people believed what was true, but it was a good time for her to just sit there and counsel me about friends, activities, how I spend my time, and warn me that in this world, we will often uh, find that people's perception of you is all that matters. That's gossip. Words can tear you down. Words can destroy a person's reputation. Listen to what Morgan Blake, he was a sports writer for the Atlantic Journal, once wrote. I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive, and my name is gossip. That's why Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, He who restrains his lips is wise. Don't be fuel for somebody's fire. Don't be the wood or the coal that keep a fire going. If you find out that you're in the midst of gossip, put it out. Have you heard words described as life-giving? Proverbs describes words that are used correctly as life-giving. Proverbs 15.4, gentle words bring life and health. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 16.24, kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Proverbs 18.4, a person's words can be life-giving water. Words of true wisdom are as refreshing as a bubbling brook. I think we've all had experiences where our words are the opposite of life-giving. And when my words are bad, they tend to hurt the people closest to me, my family. Um, I gave a sharp response to my son the other day, and his face just fell. They were life-taking words, and to my great shame. I think it's really easy to think of what not to say or to remember the pain of saying something wrong, but how many of you guys have experienced life-giving words? The words you needed in the moment, the encouragement, the truth, something to help you finish a task, something to help you run strong, ultimately something that was spoken in love that reminded you of the Lord. Um, I think many of you know, because you know Katie, that my mother passed away when I was young. About a month before she passed, I was eight years old, I snuggled up to her, I looked her in the eye, and I said, Mom, are you going to die? And I, I honestly can't wait to one day see her in heaven and ask her, now that I'm a mother, what in the world she was thinking when I asked her that. But she was steady. She looked right back at me dead in the eye and said, yes, I am going to die. She, she told me she didn't want to leave us. She didn't want to leave Dad. And I, I knew her love. But then she talked about her Savior. And she sat there, and I knew she was going to die, and she was just lit up with God and heaven. And the, the, she knew where she was going. And she gave that to me. She gave me truth. She told me it was going to be hard. She told me it was brutal. She didn't want to leave us. Death is hard. She left me with truth. But man, she made heaven real. In the hardest days after her death, I had a hope. I had a future because she didn't just leave me with fluffy words. She left me with the character of God. She talked about who her Savior is. She didn't say, I'm going to a better place, I won't be in pain. She talked about what is heaven. Those were really life-giving words. I don't often, in fact, I've never remembered an entire sermon perfectly. Um, but I remember the couple of sentences that really spoke and convicted and helped me grow. I remember being corrected in truth. And those moments are really humbling, but they helped me confess sin. <sighs> it is with the contrast of life-giving words and life 
destroying words in mind that I want to come to our fourth point. The tongue proves your conversion. This is the part of the text that is really the hardest for me to teach on today. Verses 7 through 9, we read, For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. What do you do with that? Well, I wanted to never speak again. <laughs> I just kind of stared and thought, well, I can't talk. I thought that's going to be a real strain on my family, so that's not going to work. I better talk. I thought, well, I can't not talk. I can't talk. Help. And that's the answer. Help. Oh, no human being can control their tongue. We can't do anything good apart from ourselves, but God is able. God is our help. We know that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. I can't control my tongue, but God can. And it's with that hope, and it's, it's, it's huge hope. That's the hope of every believer. <laughs> he's at work in us. He's the God of our salvation, and he's at work in me, and he hasn't left me where I am. He has sent the Holy Spirit to reside in me and to make me new. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord we're not left. This, this is one of those times in scripture where we have to kind of rest in the mystery of God's word and not try to figure it out. We know that we are responsible for our speech. And we also know that God is at work in our lives and sovereign over us and will accomplish his will in our lives, including our speech. We know he transforms our hearts from dying to living. And he radically changes our lives. We also know that we are to obey and bring our bodies under submission. Thank you. Yeah, don't talk about your mom. You cry. And then you have a runny nose. Um, sorry, I lost my spot there with that. We also know that we are to obey and bring our bodies under submission. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Whenever we come to a point in Scripture where there's that tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I remember that old story about a lady coming up to Charles Spurgeon and asking, how do you reconcile man's responsibility and God's sovereignty? To which he replied, my dear lady, you don't reconcile friends. <laughs> I would encourage you with this. If you find that you are gaining more and more control of your speech, praise the Lord. Praise him for his work in your life. And moreover, if you find that this is an area that you're continually failing with, it's continually causing division, examine your heart before the Lord and examine it closely. None of us will ever be perfect this side of heaven. We know that. And this isn't intended to be condemning. It's intended to tell us to excel still more. And it's to encourage us to take our speech as seriously as James does, and in turn, as seriously as Jesus does. And now we come to my last point. The tongue's perfidy. Did I skip point four? Ladies, I told you this was my first time. It proves your conversion. Thank you. My point on... Why you need to examine your tongue wouldn't make sense if you didn't know that point four was it proves your conversion. I did? Yeah. Oh, you weren't paying attention. <laughs> Don't record this part. Anyway, and we come to our last point, point five. The tongue's perfidy to compromise. So I was rolling with my outline. I was pretty excited. I had all these P's lined up, and I couldn't find a last point. And then I looked up John MacArthur's outline, 
and I was feeling really good about myself because some of our words were the same, not all of them, but I was like, yes, I'm on the right track. And then he said he had a really hard time coming up with a word, a P word for the last one, so I totally stole his. And it's perfidy, never heard of it before. So let's quickly talk about the word perfidy. Um, it means treachery, duplicity, faithlessness, breach of trust. Remember how the tongue and the heart are barely distinguishable in Hebrew? Our hypocritical hearts make our tongues hypocritical as well. Once I understood the word perfidy, I really couldn't find a better one to describe the tongue as we come to verses 9 through 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. What a joy and a privilege it is to be able to bless the Lord with our lips. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34.1. When I was in high school, one of my teachers was a Messianic Jewish rabbi. And he told us that speaking blessings to the Lord was like a ritual part of their day. They had specific blessings that they spoke, and they did it at specific times. And it was a way to bless the Lord and show him honor. And even um, they can't write the word Yahweh. They just do a Y-H. Any of you guys know that? Well, the Jews in, in James' time would have been far more familiar of these blessings that they spoke to the Lord. And James makes note here that our hypocrisy is shown when we bless the Lord, but curse those that are made in God's image. I don't believe that we talk about what it means to be made in the image of God enough. There are few things more humbling than the fact that God himself bestowed some of his attributes on us. We get to share in the character of God. Of course, not all of it, but some of it. And let that sink in for a moment. I share character traits with God. He has seen fit that his children should look like him. And if we really understood this truth, don't you think that we would act differently and more to the point, speak differently? We curse those who are made in the image of God. One commentator said, any profane speech is inconsistent. It's unacceptable. It's a compromise. God has saved us. And when God saved us, am I echoing? Don't touch it. He transformed us, and when he transformed us, he gave us a capacity for new speech, and he expects us to speak that way. It's an impossible compromise to tolerate, and James illustrates the obvious with three pictures. Verse 11, does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet and bitter? What's the answer? No. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh? Again, the answer is no. And that's where James stops. Feels a bit abrupt. Can salt water produce fresh water? Yes. Leaves us feeling a little bit heavy. But in this world of relative truth, <laughs> full of speech that tickles our ears and gives freedom to basically anything that we may want or desire, I think it's excellent. And indeed, it's excellent because it's the word of God that we are left to feel the weight of our speech. Are we redeemed? Am I redeemed? Are you redeemed? Let's speak like it. Give life with your words. Love one another with your words. Build one another up with your words. Show the world that we are filled with Christ's love with our words. And remember, ladies, there's now no condemnation. We all fail in this. James makes that clear. And where sin abounds, grace abounds more. But make it something we take seriously and pray over. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Um, and all the intricacies of it, that we get to learn from it, that it's living, that it's part of who you are, that it creates and it sustains life. Um, it's just a miracle. 
and, and we get to use words to uh, edify and to build up the church. So as we go from here today, just help us to do that. Help us to love one another well and to honor you when we do that. In your name, amen.